Then Jesus and the disciples sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When he got out on land, a demon-possessed man from the town met him. For a long time, the man had worn no clothes and did not stay in the house, but in the, in the catacombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was guarded, bound by chains and shackles, he would snap the restraints and be driven by the demon into deserted places. What's your name? Jesus asked him. Legion, he said, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to banish them to the abyss. A large herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside. The demons begged him to permit them to enter the pigs, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the man who tended them saw what had happened, they ran off and reported it in the town and in the countryside. Then people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and found the man. The demons had departed from him, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. This passage of Jesus casting out legion from the Gerasene demoniac is pretty famous, but it also reads a little bit like a political cartoon. Because the demon's name is legion, which referred to those great groups of Roman soldiers. And it's as if Jesus is saying, not only do I have power over the natural world, not only do I have power over the spirits, I also have power over Rome. With the word, I can bring victory. And so legion ends up serving the purpose that demons often serve in the New Testament, which is to demonstrate the power of God. Likewise, in our text this morning, Acts chapter 19, in the cover verses 8 through 20, we will find an evil spirit that ends up demonstrating the extent of God's power. An evil spirit whose actions lead to the magnifying of Jesus' name. And that's our main idea this morning, that the power of God prevails. The power of God prevails. And I'm going to exhort you to believe in the power of God. To magnify the name of Jesus to see the might of the creator of the universe and to be moved to worship. We'll go through our outline this way. God's word heard, his wonders displayed, and God's name esteemed. There's kind of a sub-point, too, is really two points. It could have, we could have done something even more exciting with some alliteration, right? We could have done uh, the message, the miracles. There was another one. The magic, and then the magnifying. So if you like that, that outline better, you can, you can figure it out. But we're going to move through the text in this way together. We'll pray, and then we'll get started this morning. Father, we come before you today, ready to start another week, recognizing that we 
are a people in need of your mercy and of your love. We are weak and weary. We come in here as those who have failed to live perfect lives. Those who have been unholy in action and word and deed. Come as those who need a Savior. We thank you that you've provided one for us. Indeed, that we are one with Jesus in whom we have put our faith and our trust, in whom there is forgiveness of sin. Lord, we pray that we would experience your mercy afresh this morning. We pray that you would enable us to feel the presence of your Spirit in our midst, We thank you that regardless of our feelings, you are here among us as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. It's incredible, God. Pray that we would never become numb to this reality. We ask that you would wake us up this morning to your power, your mercy, your grace. Lord, Speak to us now in your word, through your word. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in Acts, we've summarized it this way. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, the church goes out, and God brings people in. And so in chapter 1, Jesus ascends to his throne in heaven from where he rules and reigns and pours out his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then fills up his church who goes into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of of the earth, carrying this message of reconciliation with God, this good news of the gospel that says, even though we have sinned against God, we have turned and stabbed him in the back, we have demanded to live life our way rather than his way, even though we have followed our hearts rather than listening to God's voice, instead of crushing us between his omnipotent, mighty right hand, he came as a man and was crushed for us. That God found a way to end evil without ending you and me. Indeed, instead of ending us, He has made a way to adopt us. This is the good news that that Paul and Peter and John and the church is proclaiming, and it's moving. It's moving throughout the world. God's Word is spreading in Acts. And it is a message of hope and of salvation. As the message says, friends, death is coming for all of us. You will die and you will be held accountable. Death is a natural declaration that you will be held accountable before God. And it's supposed to tip you off to the urgency to hear this good news that that you do need a Savior. Because physical death is the tip of the iceberg. It points to a deeper spiritual reality. An eternity apart from God underneath of His righteous right wrath. That's what we, it's what we deserve. It's the path we are on unless we receive the grace given to us in Christ Jesus. Grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. Grace means turning from my sin and trusting that Christ has died for my sins. And that now God looks at me and says, Behold, my beloved son, behold, my beloved daughter with whom I am well pleased. This is the good news that is making its way throughout the world. 
It's the good news that's still making its way into every nook and cranny, to the top of every mountain, to the bottom of every valley in our world. The news of reconciliation with God. The news of relationship with the God who made us and created us. The news that death doesn't have to be the last word. That there is a God who has power over death. That indeed Jesus Christ entered into death and came out the other side. That he holds the keys of death and of Hades and that he is seated at the right hand of God right now and he's returning to restore everything. And the question is for us, for those who would hear this good news, will we lay down our arms and submit to our God or will we persist in rebellion? His patience is meant to lead us to repentance. His kindness and His mercy, they're there for those who will come to faith in Christ. But for those who continue to reject His grace and His mercy, there comes an expiration day. And our hope is that we would not remain enemies of God, but that we would hear His word to us. This good news that Paul now takes to the city of Ephesus in his third missionary journey. We pick up in verse 8 of chapter 19, and once more we see Paul following that pattern where he enters the synagogue. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And so in conformity with this pattern, Paul goes into the Jewish synagogue and he's teaching them about Jesus. He's saying the kingdom of God, it's already, it's not yet, it's here. Jesus has come, he's died for sins, he's risen from the grave, he's ascended into heaven and he will return. He's taken that message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's taken it to the Jewish people. Saying the Messiah that you have been waiting for has come. Turn and believe in him. And he gets to do this for three Months. But after three months, tensions begin to rise. Certainly some are persuaded, but others, they are perturbed. Verse 9, But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way, way is just what they called the church or Christians early on, slandering the way in front of the crowd or congregation, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And so you have Paul for three months teaching in this synagogue in Ephesus. Some are being persuaded into the faith, they're believing in Jesus, but others become angered. They begin slandering Paul and slandering the gospel. And so Paul withdraws from them. It's interesting that old proverb, I don't know who said it, just rings true here. That the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so some are reconciled with God and some are hardened in their rebellion. And Paul recognizes that it's wise for him to move on at this point. And so he, he takes the disciples, that's those who have been persuaded and those who were converted from John's baptism in the seven verses that came before. He takes them and he goes to this lecture hall in Tyrannus. I said it wrong the first time for some reason. It like, sounds like Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? The word actually means tyrant. And so we, sometimes it's translated like this is a schoolhouse, but 
It's a public meeting place, and it's named for a guy named Tyrant or Tyrannus. At any rate, Paul is able to minister here publicly for two years, and the result is, you can see that in verse 10, the result of this action is that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. And so everybody has heard this good news. Friends, this passage should encourage you, encourages me, Because despite Paul's rejection, his seeming failure, the word still bears fruit. The gospel still flourishes. So one thing it definitely encourages me to do, and I want to encourage you towards, is to have a long-term view of evangelism, right? Sometimes I think as Christians, we think of evangelism as an all-or-nothing event, and so, you know, we, we, we meet a new friend or somebody that doesn't know Jesus. And so we feel like we have to end that conversation with, Jesus was crucified for your sins. He resurrected on the third day. He's ascended into heaven. He's returning to make all things new. You must repent and believe in him. Will you? Like we want to bring him to a point of decision right then and there. And yes, there is a time and a place where we'll have conversations where we should bring others to a point of decision. But it doesn't have to be every time. So we can have the long-term view and have relationship with them. So if, you're, if you play baseball, it's not a really great idea every time you get up to the plate to try and hit a home run, swing for the fences. You're going to get a hold of a few and you know, hit a few home runs, but you're going to strike out an awful lot. The, the better approach, typically, is to just get up and try to hit for singles. Singles eventually result in runs. Ordinary faithfulness over time is going to typically be the most fruitful course for your evangelism. You don't don't have to bring someone to a point of decision each and every time you have a discussion with them. You don't have to to crush them beneath a, a boulder. Instead, it might be more effective for you to put pebbles in their shoes. What I mean by that is, is, is... We want to have conversations about Christ and about spiritual things and about their worldview that cause them a little bit of discomfort. Have you ever ever had a conversation with somebody and they say something and then it just, you know, hangs out in your head, bugs you? You keep thinking about it. This is what I mean when I say put a pebble in their shoe. Because if you've ever had a pebble in your shoe, you're walking along and you're like, I'm too lazy to bend over and take it out right away. I'll just kind of try to ignore it. And then you keep going and eventually like, the pebble has to come out of my shoe. Right? And, and this, is, this is how we want to uh, approach or have a long-term view to evangelism. We just want to put little pebbles in people's shoes and wait for God to act. Yes, there'll, there'll come a time where we have that conversation where we, we want to urge someone towards repentance and faith in Christ. We want to use our wisdom in knowing the difference. We want, to, we want to take a long-term view to evangelism. We want to care for people over the long term. We want to love people over the long term. We want to share the gospel with them over the long term. We want to pray believing God will act. That their conversion, their belief in Jesus isn't up to us at this one moment in time and space in history, but that God is sovereign enough to save on his timetable. And so in our evangelism, we want to sow gospel seeds happily and wait for God to give the growth. The long-term view of evangelism. We also see that we want to have a long-term view of learning. 
And I don't know that many Christians think this way. But there is that second part of the Great Commission that says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And this is what Paul is doing here. For two years, he is teaching people the word of God. And so I think the application is pretty easy. That we should be those who are willing and desire to learn and hear the word of God. We should want to learn about God. Right? I, I wouldn't be a very good husband if when I got married, I told my wife, well, glad we're married now, but I don't want to learn anything else about you. Right? That's not, that's not going to be a very fruitful or vibrant marriage. No, what a good husband would do and what I should do is say, I want to learn more about you. And as I grow in my knowledge of my wife, I'll grow in my delight in her. This is true in any of your relationships. The more you learn about somebody, the more you're going to love them, be involved in their lives. Likewise, if you are telling me you have a relationship with God, but you never speak with him in prayer, that you never listen to him speak to you in his word, that you don't want to learn anything else about him, I don't know how much you love God. I want to be those who are committed to learning over the long term, the rest of our lives. And so take advantage of the book table in the back. Those books are free. Take them, they'll teach you about God. Most of them ecclesiology. Take advantage of that. Read your Bible. Come to to Bible study in Sunday school. Come to this service regularly. Pursue God in his word. Learn about him. And you will find that you grow in your love for, your delight in, your contentment in Christ to learn about God. Paul has great success here as God's message spreads through Ephesus and everyone hears. God's word is heard through the voice of Paul and now God's wonders are seen through the hands of Paul. Look with me at verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. And so this is just really neat. Notice who's doing the miracles in verse 11. God is performing miracles extraordinary miracles. God is actually the one who's behind anything miraculous that ever happens. He's the one that does it. Paul doesn't have the power. God does. God is doing through Paul what Luke calls extraordinary miracles. So these these are miraculous miracles, even more miraculous than normal miracles. It reminds me of God's work through Peter in Acts 5 in verse 12. Many signs and wonders were being done among the people through the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing numbers, multitudes of both men and women. As a result, they would carry the sick out into the streets and lay them on cots and mats, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
In addition, a multitude came together from towns surrounding Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And so so you see, the same way that God was working through the authoritative apostolic ministry of Peter, he's working through Paul, who is an authoritative apostle. So so he's proving, what we're seeing here is God is confirming his work in Paul. He's confirming and substantiating Paul's ministry. He's proving that Paul is preaching the right gospel and that he represents God, just like Peter did. He's he's not second rate. um, These miraculous miracles kind of serve as uh, apostolic credentials, both for Peter and for Paul. Uh, Paul kind of talks about him in this way in 2 Corinthians 12, 11 through 12. He says, I've been a fool. You forced it on me. You ought to have commended me, since I am not in any way inferior to those super apostles. Uh, when Paul, he's being sarcastic in 2 Corinthians, the super apostles are false teachers. Uh, he says, even though I am nothing, again, some more sarcasm. Uh, verse 12, the signs of an apostle were performed with unfailing endurance among you, including signs and wonders, and miracles. And so what he's saying is, I am a legitimate apostle. You can see these miraculous miracles in my life. And these miraculous miracles are happening here in Acts 19. And it's, it's really, you know, basically Paul's sweat rags are healing people. And so he was a tent maker, and the, the apron and the, what's the other thing, cloth? I should figure out where I'm right. His, his, his face cloth, his aprons, thank you. Uh, it's like a handkerchief that would have been worn or like maybe like a towel on his side. So we think of him as a, a tent maker. His work he's doing just like wiping the sweat from his face and from his hands. And you can almost imagine, I don't know that he was passing them out. He doesn't seem super active. But in, in my sanctified imagination, um, people are like, he's done for the day. He's gone off to the lecture hall at Tyrannus and he's teaching and his sweat rags are like laying there where he was working and people are like sneaking in and they're taking these sweat rags and they're going away and people are being healed by them right? These things that are touching Paul's skin are healing people in the same way that Peter's shadow was healing people. We see that, that sicknesses are being healed and that evil spirits are being driven out. I don't know what that looks like, but Luke is telling us it was happening. Now, let me point out a really bad way to read this text and then two applications from it, okay? really bad way to read this text is to go, Paul is healing with his sweat rags, and therefore, I, as a Christian, should be able to heal other people with my sweaty clothing. That's bad, right? That's not a good way to read the text. In Acts, we've talked about there are things that are descriptive. They describe what is happening, like this passage here. And there are things that that are prescriptive, things that we also should do. Evangelism, sharing the gospel. And distinguishing between that which is descriptive and prescriptive is really, really important. One describes what God is doing and what's happening in the early church, and the other describes what we ought to do and what would happen to us. And so um, an example of how this passage is sometimes applied in really bizarre ways, uh, maybe you've received in the mail or or seen on TV uh, like a prayer rug, 
if you've got the one in the mail, it's like a piece of paper that's folded up and you unfold it. And it, if you read the thing, it's like this, this prayer rug has been blessed by the mighty apostle um, Clement. Uh, and he, he has promised that whoever prays on it will receive from God what they ask for. And this is just the first, right? Just try this one out. It's kind of a one, one-time deal. And then after you get what you prayed for from God, send us X amount of dollars and we'll send you the full rug version. Right? You can see this on, it's the same thing on TV when uh, televangelists uh, who are falsely teaching say, you know, come and put your hand on the screen and I will heal you. This isn't, this isn't a bad way to apply this text. This is not what God is telling us. We're smart people. You're smart people. You know this. So that's the bad way to read the text. We need to distinguish between what's prescriptive and what's descriptive. But the two applications, I think, are legitimate. One is that we would want to imitate the faith of those who are being healed. We want to imitate their faith. They are expecting healing from God. I mean, to take somebody's, what amounts to their gym socks or a sweatband and have faith that healing will come. It's a faith to be imitated. That, that kind of faith in God and faith in Jesus is laudable. We, we want to have that kind of expectant and active faith in our life. And so, imitate faith. And I also think, Pray for miracles is the second one. Pray for miracles. I think often Christians do not have this kind of expectant faith that we don't pray expectantly because we have really small thoughts of God. We don't believe God can do anything miraculous because, well, he just doesn't do that anymore. But friends, God can do whatever he wants. He's in the heavens. He does whatever whatever he pleases. He's all-powerful. And so he can do miracles through sweat rags or shadows or the touch of Christ. If you remember the woman who comes up and touches the hem of his garment, he heals her. And he can heal and do the miraculous through prayer. Pray for it. Expect it. It doesn't mean it's going to happen. But we should have the posture of those who believe God hears us and will act on our behalf. We should pray expectantly. So we want to imitate the faith. We want to pray expectantly. And the third thing is we don't want to presume upon the grace of God. We don't want to presume upon the grace of God. He doesn't have to do what we ask. Don't presume to force God to do anything. Like the seven sons of Sceva. We see them here in verse 13. Now some of the itinerant Jewish Exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. And so in Ephesus, at the time, Ephesus really liked um, magic and the occult. And so the, the city was full with kind of um, this preclude, not obsession with the supernatural. They were really into magic, like Hogwarts maybe, okay? And so uh, what was going on here, you have the occult and uh, the belief that men and women can control the supernatural realm through just incantations, rituals, or spells, right? And so you would have different 
groups, healers, magicians that would go around and say, yeah, yeah, I can take care of that demon for you. I'm going to say these special words. I'm going to do this particular ritual and then all will be well. And among them are these seven sons of Sceva, who was a high priest. Well, maybe not. We don't have any record of a man named Sceva serving as a Jewish high priest. And so there are two possibilities. One, uh, this Sceva was a member of the Jewish high priest's family, not really the high priest. And they went by that moniker for um, obvious reasons, right? To be in the high priest and put you closer to the supernatural, get you some clout. So it's like someone calling themselves doctor today, even though they're not a doctor, right? And so uh, that's one possibility. And the second possibility I think I just gave to you too is that they just used it in order to build their reputation. And so they would go around from person to person, case to case, a little bit like a traveling act, if you can think of, you know, one night only, the seven sons of Sceva. Yes! They're going to use their incantations. Marshall comments, there were people who went around making a living by various kinds of pseudoscientific or clairvoyant powers, including the practice of exorcism. They were ready to call on the names of any and every god or divinity in their invocations, and often they recited long lists of names, so as to be sure of including the right god in any particular case. And so this is going to be the goal of the seven sons of Sceva. They're going to use, they see that Paul's been doing these miracles, that God's been doing these miracles through Paul. So they're going to use the name Jesus to give some extra oomph to their exorcisms. And this is, as it turns out, not to be a good idea. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and prevailed against them, so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. This is one of those parts of the Bible that you go, wait, what? What just happened? I, I love it. I love how, how God does these things. And there's, there's, there's no doubt what happens here, right? It's just incredible. You have one guy filled with an evil spirit, he takes on seven sons of Sceva. And it's one on seven, and so I guess the evil spirit within him, he is like Jackie Chan, right? Or Doeg, right? You don't know what he's capable of. He's, he's ready to take out seven guys. And there's just no doubt about who wins the battle here. This evil spirit turns the seven sons of Sceva into the seven streakers of Ephesus. Right? It's not... It's not complicated. If, if when the fight starts, you're wearing pants, and when the fight is over, you are not wearing pants, you've lost. And so what, what are we supposed to learn from this? Because we kind of laugh at this account like, you know, there's demons and there's spirits, and these, they get on the skies and they send them out naked. But that's not the response of Ephesus. We laugh, but they are filled with fear actually leads them to repentance. And so this is, this is what we need to learn, what we need to see. God is proving his power in the spiritual realm. And he's distinguishing himself from these pretenders and these pseudo-magicians that exist in Ephesus. Saying, no, 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 no. This is not an incantation. My power is, is real power. 
I cannot, the name of Jesus cannot be wielded as a just rabbit's foot, right? We cannot manipulate God. The seven sons of Sceva cannot manipulate and utilize the name of Jesus to bring about their ends. We saw an example of this earlier in 1 Samuel when we read it together. Remember, Israel is defeated and they're like, hey, we're getting wrecked. What's the problem here? Oh, I know. Somebody go get the lucky rabbit's foot, right? And we'll send these two sorry excuses for priests and maybe two of the worst human beings ever to get the most holy object in Israel. We'll bring that out into the field and then we'll have victory over our enemies. And God would not be manipulated. His people were decimated. They lost. And then later he proves his power. He was not defeated. God cannot be manipulated. But time and time again, I think we as Christians, we get this backwards. We mess it up. I think this is why prosperity gospel is so popular. Because, well, well, think of its message, right? God wants to prosper you. He wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be happy. He wants you to be wealthy and satisfied. And the way that you take hold of happiness and wealth and satisfaction is by believing enough. You believe in Him. And part of how you do that is by giving me a whole lot of money. But if you're sick, it's because you haven't had enough faith. It's the same, same kind of thing here. Just trying to manipulate God. Trying to use the name of Jesus to get what I want, to bring about the outcome I want. And it doesn't work because God is not the slave of any man. He's not a cosmic vending machine. Put faith in, get whatever I want out. This is not how this relationship works. God is God. And this idea that that if I have enough faith and I won't get sick, if I have enough faith, my fields won't flood and people won't die, it's just not true. The matrix of the prosperity gospel crumbles underneath of real life. Because when suffering comes, and it will come, you're going to need something more than, well, just believe a little harder and things will get better. They might not. But our faith should be in Christ. Think of, of Job had God's favor and suffered. Think of Jesus. Had God's favor and suffered until death. The point I'm trying to make, and not, not well, admittedly, is that God's favor isn't discerned by looking at your circumstances. That doesn't tell you if God's pleased with you or not. God's favor is discerned by looking to the cross. If your eyes are on the cross and on Christ, crucified for your sin, raised for your justification, well, then you have God's favor. If you are believing in Jesus and following after him, then you have God's favor. The gospel message is actually just way opposite of the prosperity gospel. God wants you to be happy and wealthy and and satisfied, and certainly he wants you to be satisfied in Christ. But the gospel message doesn't say, come to Jesus and he'll make your life really, really good. You'll get a big house and a BMW. The gospel says, deny yourself, 
die to yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, is what Jesus says. Follow Jesus. And that image is meant to say, pick up this instrument of torturous death and follow Jesus to the death. Because those who follow Jesus are going to suffer like Jesus. Suffering will come to you in this life. And so the Christian life is a whole lot. There are times where you're just going to lose and lose and lose and lose and lose until the evening and then die. But then in the morning you will wake up to glory. Because our God is all-powerful. And even though weeping may last for a night, joy comes in the morning for the Christian. Even though our sufferings may feel unbearable and as if they have no end, they indeed have an expiration date. Even death will die because Jesus is alive. We cannot manipulate God. Instead, we must trust him. Instead, we must trust him. This, this employing the name of Jesus as the seven sons of Sceva do here to try to bring about their own ends or you know, saying, if I have enough faith and then I'll, it'll bring about whatever end I want. It's really destructive for the Christian life because it puts your eyes on you and your faith and your ability instead of on Christ, who is all satisfying and glorious. It's the wrong question. We're saved not by the amount of faith we're able to conjure up within ourselves, but by the object of our faith. What our faith is in. If our faith is in us, we are ruined. But if our faith is in Jesus, well, he's all-powerful. And he turns these seven sons of Sceva into the means by which his name is magnified. And we notice what happens. Verse 17. When this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, notice this is the same refrain from earlier in verse 10. Everyone in Asia, which is where Ephesus is, Jews and Greeks, hear the word of the Lord. Now everyone has heard of this. It's become known. And so they've seen God's word and God's wonders. And that combination is going to lead to them magnifying the name of Jesus. So, So they all here, who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. They became filled with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. It was extolled. It was magnified. It was glorified. So the evil spirit having victory over the seven sons of Sceva brings about glorification of Jesus. Why? Because there's a major contrast in our text. This is kind of the heartbeat of this section. Between the legitimate miracles done by God through Paul and the work of the seven sons of Sceva. So that we're able to see that God's power is real power. And it's being contrasted with the evil spirits and the seven sons of Sceva. They can't even take out one evil spirit, and there are seven of them. And Paul's sweaty rags 
are able to heal of diseases and to cast out demons. There's more power in the fingernail of God than in the seven sons of Sceva. Which is why everybody becomes a friend. They're like, this is real power. And so they begin to magnify Jesus by repenting and confessing. Look at this in, in verse 18. And many who had become believers, I think this refers to both people who became believers after hearing of these events and hearing the gospel, and also folks that were already Christians who had held on to some of their favorite pet sins. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Ranges about how much this 50,000 pieces of silver would have been worth. I've heard a few thousand dollars. I've heard a few million dollars. I've heard over a hundred years salary. The point of it being recorded is to tell us the value of the books was a lot. So they they come out and they burn their books. Why do they do this publicly? Is this like a, a Fahrenheit 451 Bradbury kind of deal here? No. It's a good book, though. You should, you should check it out. You guys, some of you are looking at me like, we've never heard of that. Check it out. They're not being forced to burn their books. They're doing it because they've realized that, that Jesus is the supreme power, that they need not rely on these incantations anymore. Furthermore, to, to bring a magic spell or ritual into public was to diminish its potency. So his potency was tied to its secrecy. So as they bring this out and they, and they burn, their, they're saying, we are all in on Jesus. We're all in. We're done with these past sins. We're moving forward in faithfulness. This God has real power. These other things that we were relying on, they, they're nothing. And so they go all in. They are like the man in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. This is, this is their posture. When you come to Jesus, when you really are confronted with his power and his mercy and his grace, you recognize that he is more valuable than anything else in your life. And so you repent, you turn from your sin, and you say, all of that is in my past. I'm done with it because I have Jesus and he is worth more. Is Jesus worth more to you? They're burning their books because they believe in the power of God. Do you? Are you still relying on money for security? You still find your hope in that next doctor's visit. You still find your identity in your child or grandchild. Or have you gone all in on Jesus? Is Jesus where your heart is? Is Jesus what's most valuable to you? Do you trust in His power to deliver what you need and to deliver you from death? Or are you trusting in something else? 
Friends, if you have secret sins or secret things that you are depending on instead of God, turn from them before they turn on you. Keeping sin in your life is like keeping a grizzly bear in your house. You know, maybe you can get it to calm down for a little while and you've got it under control, you're feeding him, combing him, but eventually the grizzly bear is going to turn on you and rip you apart. So too will your sin. An addiction to internet pornography will tear you apart. An addiction to gossiping will tear you apart. Disobedience to any part of the Word of God will ruin you in the long term if you continue to cling to it. Turn from your sin. It's slavery. I know it seems pleasurable, but it's slavery. When you insist on your sin, you sound like Israel in the wilderness going, oh, if we could, if we could only get back to Egypt, we had great food to eat. It was so much better then. No, you were enslaved. You have pet sins in your life. You are a slave. Bring those sins to Jesus. He'll set you free. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He has overcome the grave. He has overcome sin. He's powerful enough to deliver you from slavery to sin. He's powerful enough to bring you from darkness into life. He's powerful enough to raise the dead because he himself is risen from the dead. Believe in his power. It always prevails. Verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord mightily flourished and powerfully prevailed. I don't know how, the, I, I, translating this, you, you can look at a bunch of different translations. There are two different words for power or might, and they're both in there twice. That's why I tried to read it to you that way when I paraphrased it. And if you'll notice earlier in verse 16, the evil spirits are overpowering and prevailing. The evil spirits prevailing against seven sons of Sceva. See, ultimately what we're, what we're supposed to see in this text is that God's power prevails. God's power prevails and the word moves on. The gospel goes forward. Jesus has promised his church that the gates of hell will not, cannot, and won't prevail against it. The gospel will be successful. The gospel continues to grow. Because God's power prevails. It's time we started believing in his power. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we confess that too often we are more confident in our weakness than we are in your word. That we trust more in our own resources than we do in your sovereignty. We ask that this, this text this morning would remind us that you're omnipotent, that you're good, that you are trustworthy, that it would lead us to magnifying your name afresh, to delighting in Jesus. Lord, increase our faith in Christ. Help us to delight in him. This we pray in his name. Amen.